Several years ago, um, I came down with a, a horrible virus. And, of course, uh, my family was uh, gone for the weekend. That's kind of always how it goes. And I, I put myself to bed, but uh, I got sicker and sicker throughout the night. And I'll spare you the details, but uh, after several trips to the bathroom, I, I thought I was going to die. <laughs> and um, I, uh, I, I passed out, and I hit the tile floor and hit my head and, uh, and chipped a couple of my teeth. And when I, when I came to, I didn't have the strength to even make it back to bed. So I just lay there on, on the floor of the bathroom. I thought, you know, uh, tomorrow morning, Sunday morning, when, um, when Melinda gets here, she'll, she'll find my lifeless body. There I'll be, dead, and, and she'll find me like that. But somehow I lived through the night, clearly, and uh, when the first few rays of the sun began to come through my window, I thought, man, I'm going to make it. I'm going to live. I went from death to life. You you ever notice that, how at night you toss and you turn and you're struggling with with feeling overwhelmed with a problem or with some situation, but once morning arrives, the problem seems to have shrunk to its proper proportion. You ever notice that? Or the pain uh, that's kept you uh, awake at night seems somehow more manageable when daylight uh, arrives. Well, our psalmist discovered the same thing. Now listen as I read the first five verses. I will exalt you, Lord, for you lifted me out of the depths and did not let my enemies gloat over me. Lord, my God, I called you for help. And you healed me. You, Lord, brought me up from the realm of the dead. You spared me from going down to the pit. Sing the praises of the Lord, you, his faithful people. Praise his holy name, for his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. Well, we're in week four of our Lenten series in the Psalms, and we've been using the Psalms to learn how we can, how we can talk to God. Last week, we looked at uh, a Psalm of Lament. Today, we look at one of the Psalms of Thanksgiving. Now, if you look at the superscription before it, it tells us that it was a song, so it was meant to be sung, that it was used for the dedication of the temple, and it was written by David. Now, of course, the temple dedication would have been long after David uh, died, so it's unlikely that he uh, wrote it for that specific occasion. But what we know is that, that David was giving thanks because he had been in a bad way. He had been near death. He thought he was going to die, and it's hard to tell what it was. It seems like it was probably a sickness, but he also mentions that enemies were, were gloating over his demise. There were those around him who were hoping he was going to die. But God heals him, and he wants everybody to know it. He wants the entire faith community to join him in singing God's praise. And so here's the first thing that we learn from this psalm, and it's this, and it's so important, that God does not protect us from hardship, does he? You've probably already learned that. That life is hard, that life has its ups and downs, and and nowhere 
do we see this more clearly than in David's life? He had been through the ups and downs of life, but not just him. Almost every Bible character, I mean, think of Abraham and, and Moses and Job and, and Daniel and Jeremiah, the, the apostles and Paul. And of course, Jesus. The truth is that nobody escapes pain and hardship. Life doesn't go according to plan. Life is a combination of, of highs and and lows, it's a combination of good days and bad days, of, of wonderful triumphs and bitter defeats, great sorrows, and yet incredible joys. And so if you have this dream that life ought to be like a, a Norman Rockwell painting, <laughs> you'll most likely be disappointed. But here's the second part of that truth. In this pain and sorrow, it is there that oftentimes God does his most profound work in us. The story of Lazarus in chapter 11 of John's gospel is, is a great example. Jesus hears the news that one of his good friends, Lazarus, is sick. And he tells his disciples, the sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God may be glorified through it. So he's saying, this is not what you think it, it is. This is not going to end the way you think it, it's going to end. And I'm going to be glorified through this. God is going to be glorified through this. This is, this is all going to be good. When they hear that Lazarus is sick, Jesus stays where he is two more days. And this delay proves to be tragic. For even though Jesus offers words of consolation, he, he fails to act. Jesus fails to act and it precipitates even more suffering and more sorrow. And so Jesus finally is ready to go to Bethany where Lazarus lives. And, and Thomas says, well, okay, well, let's go with Jesus so we can die with him. Isn't that a great attitude? <laughs> but here's the thing. Thomas understands that following Jesus is risky business. That there may be words of consolation along the way, but, but a commitment to following Jesus sometimes puts us in the way of danger. Sometimes puts us in the way of sorrow. Now, I don't know how long that you've been following Jesus, but you've probably already discovered that, that when Christ calls us, He's not always calling us to things that are the safest or the easiest or, or least painful. You know, sometimes, you know, it's easy to imagine Him saying, you know what, I'm, I'm going to go and I'm going to chart the course for your life. It's going to be it's going to be so wonderful. Every step that you take is going to be blessed, and it's going to be upward and onward. It's going to be wonderful. But the truth is, is that oftentimes that the charting of that course has us thinking, whoa, wait a minute, why there? Why that? Can't you pick something that's less sacrificial? Something that's a little less dangerous? The thing is, we need to remember is that Jesus goes with us in those places where our response needs to be Thomas-like. I don't understand why we're going here, but let's go that we may die with him. Well, you know the story. Mary meets Jesus. When she sees him, she falls at his feet. And what does she say? Lord, if you'd have been here, if you had just been here a little bit earlier, none of this would have happened. My brother would not have died. You see, as, as far as Mary can see, Jesus has stalled. Jesus has failed to act in a timely manner. As a result, he's brought more sorrow and more pain to her family. And Mary, where does she place the blame? 
He places it right at Jesus' feet. And we're responsible for this. It didn't have to be this way. But you caused it. You know, I love that, that honesty, that authenticity. And that's exactly the way that David prays. And he's not afraid because there's this level of intimacy that he's already developed with the Lord so that he can say, what was that about? Lord, if you had done this, if you had acted accordingly, if God, if you had listened to my instructions, none of this would have happened. God, you botched it. You bungled it. And now look where I am. You caused it. Remember, it wasn't very long ago that Mary gets the high praise of Jesus because she's the one sitting at Jesus' feet. Remember we told that story a couple weeks ago? She's the one who's listening. Martha's the grumpy one, right? Martha's the one in the kitchen. But here in this story, Mary is the bitter one. You see, there, there is a sense that the intimacy that we have with God makes us a little bit more vulnerable to disappointment with God. Mary, Mary is saying, I, I thought we had a different kind of relationship here, Lord. Remember when I used to sit and, and, and listen to you? I, I thought there was something implied in that intimate relationship, that closeness, that, that you were going to do whatever I asked you to do, and you are going to give me the desires of my heart. What, what happened here? Why did you allow this to happen? God, I, I thought you loved me. I thought you loved Lazarus. And John's gospel tells us that Mary burst into tears. And here's how Jesus responds. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And so Jesus steps into the sorrow and he steps into the suffering of Mary and Martha. He's not standing aloof saying, you know, get over this. Listen, I, I told you it was going to be okay in the end, so just buck up and cheer up. No, Jesus sees the grief of the sisters and the friends, and he steps into that grief. He begins to taste what they are tasting, and he begins to cry with them. Isn't that amazing? God in the flesh weeps. And not only does Jesus step into the suffering of others, he will go through his own suffering in just a few more days. Jesus experiences the very grief that he is observing. He's not standing apart from them. He's not standing aloof because he knows that life can be so ugly and brutal and random. And so he says to us, I know what it's like. I went through it myself. I feel it in my bones. I'm deeply moved. I am a part of your sorrow and of your pain because I've tasted it myself. Well, finally, he acts in the way that we hoped he would. He says, take the stone away and let him come out. And Jesus calls forth Lazarus from the grave. And now we see that Jesus enters our sorrow so that he might pull us out, so that he might bring an answer so that he might bring us consolation in the midst of our sorrow. But the story's not over yet, because if you go to chapter 12 of, of John's gospel, something else happens I think is very interesting. In the very next chapter, John's gospel says, the religious rulers made plans to kill Lazarus. <laughs> 
And so just when you think you've gone through the worst, you've escaped the, the worst that life could ever throw at you, death, suddenly he's threatened with it again. These people want his head. They don't want him hanging around. I don't understand the mystery of that. But it's true. Yes, Jesus will go through this with us. He will bring consolation in a way that only he can do that. But if we are really intent on following him, we're not out of the woods until we get to our final home. We will continue to walk in sacrifice and risk with such a Savior. And David discovers the same thing. Verse 2, I called to you for help and you healed me. You brought me up from the realm of the dead. You spared me from going down to the pit. Just as, as Lazarus had to go through the realm of the dead, so did David, and so will we. In the second part of the psalm, David calls the community of faith to praise. To you, Lord, I called. To the Lord, I cried for mercy. What, what is gained if I'm silenced, if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it proclaim your faithfulness? Hear, Lord, and be merciful to me. Lord, be my help. For you turned my wailing into sackcloth, you, or into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy, that my heart may sing your praises and not be silent. Lord, my God, I will praise you forever. See, David discovered that praise is a weapon. It's a weapon in our arsenal to defeat our enemies. I love David's argument with God. God, if I die, who will praise you? Is the dust going to praise you? It reminds me of the Palm Sunday story. Everybody is shouting Hosanna to the son of David, and it makes the religious leaders just a little bit nervous, and they come to Jesus, and they say, hey, tell your disciples to stop that. And he replies, what? If they keep quiet, the the rocks will cry out. And so, yes, David, the dust will praise the Lord, too. In fact, all of creation will someday break out in praise. My friends, praise is such a powerful tool to help us in our journey. There's a great story in Second Chronicles 20. There's a vast army that has come against tiny Judah and their king, Jehoshaphat. Three nations had formed an alliance, Moab, uh, Ammon, and Mount Seir. And they, their numbers, their combined numbers, vastly outnumber little Judah. And the king is alarmed, as, as all of us would be, if we face such an enormous crisis. And, of course, the normal and human response would be to call your generals together and to count your chariots and to form a plan and maybe find an ally who, who will help you equal the odds. Jehoshaphat does none of those things. His first response is to go to the Lord. He proclaims a national day of fasting and prayer. And the response is incredible. Everybody comes from every little village and, and town just to worship and to praise the Lord. And the king leads him in prayer and he professes his belief that, that God is ruler over all, that God is the most powerful force in the universe. And he recalls the past when, 
when God uh, made them a nation under the leadership of Moses. And he reminds God of the promise that he made to Solomon that when calamity came, that if the nation would come together and worship in the temple and cry out, that God would hear that prayer. And he concludes the prayer by confessing that there is no possible human help that's going to get them out of this situation. But he prays, God, our eyes are on you. And that's just the kind of prayer that God delights in. God loves to help people out of impossible situations. God rejoices when we acknowledge our helplessness. There's a great story in 2 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul has this thorn in the flesh. And, and he prays and prays that God will remove it. And God finally says to him, Paul, you know what? My power is made perfect in your weakness. So there they stand, men, women, and children trembling for fear, silent and scared. And then suddenly the Holy Spirit comes upon a a man named Jehaziel, and he he speaks a prophetic word from God. Thus saith the Lord, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged because of this vast army confronting you, for the battle is not yours, it's mine. And the people fall down in awe and adoration. Well, the next morning is the day of reckoning. Would, would, would Judah choose to trust God? Or would they try to take matters into their own hands? Well, the armies form their lines, but the king does the strangest thing. He, he lines up the choir to lead the charge. I mean, the choir. He's got the sopranos and then the altos, and, and uh, the basses are last. And they're going to lead the charge into this army. And some guy in the bass section is like, hey, I don't have a sword. The king says, you don't need a sword. Well, I don't have any armor. Well, you don't need any armor. Well, how do you expect us to fight? Well, I don't expect you to fight. Then what do you want us to do? I just want you to sing. You're the choir. Do what the choir does and sing. Well, what do we sing? Here's what I want you to say. Give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. That's all I want you to sing. And as, as the choir marches into the battlefield and worship and pray, something quite tap, supernatural begins uh, to take place. The alliance between these three opposing armies just begins to unravel. And before the choir even reaches the front lines, the Ammonites and the Moabites annihilate uh, Mount Seir, and then they turn on each other. And by the time the Sopranos reach the enemy, guess what? They're all dead. There is no one left alive. The battle has been won without a single blow. What a miraculous story because it teaches us, my friends, the power of praise. It reveals to us how the supernatural power of God is released as we worship Him. It makes clear that when we come against insurmountable odds, immovable obstacles, and impossible situations, the first thing we do, not the last, is to seek God in adoration and awe. I don't think we have yet to discover or to plumb the depths of what it means, what true praise and adoration will mean in our spiritual lives. You see, praise announces the glory of God. Praise announces the defeat of Uh, 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 of evil and death. Praise turns our wailing into dancing and it fills us with joy. Praise helps us deal with our fear of death. Praise will set us free. Most of us want to live here as long as we can. Truth be told, death makes us a little nervous, right? 
We avoid it. We disguise it. We talk about it in euphemisms. We go to the cemetery in the brown dirt, which will soon cover our loved ones. We have covered with astroturf. But Psalm 30 is an antidote to that. Psalm 30 reminds us that God is more powerful than death. My grandfather was 90 years old when he died. He went to church all of his life, sat in the pew, served uh, on the different committees. But he, he was a churchgoer. He didn't really know Christ. Never experienced the peace and the joy of the Holy Spirit. And his last few years were spent in a nursing home. And I can tell you that anxiety and, and worry and the fear of death characterized his life. An attempt to talk to him about spiritual things always ended in harsh words being exchanged. Until one day, my Uncle Don uh, flew in from California to visit his dying father. And uh, Uncle Don was a Southern Baptist, and he believed in the direct approach. <laughs> and he said, uh, he said, Dad, do you believe that Jesus died for your sins and that you can live in eternity forever with the Lord? And Grandpa said, I'm not sure. He said, would you like to be sure? You know, Dad, you don't have much longer to live. Well, Grandpa couldn't really argue with that logic. And he said, yes, I think I would. In that moment, my uncle prayed with Grandpa, the, what we call the sinner's prayer, just a simple prayer of confession and a prayer of, of faith in Christ. Two weeks later, Grandpa died, but the change in him was absolutely remarkable. A man who fretted and stewed, a man who didn't want to really hear about God, most certainly didn't want to hear about death was no longer afraid. That's David's story. That's David's testimony. That's what Psalm 30 is about. That he was at the point of death. And God rescued him. And he wants everybody to know that this is not a private affair for him. He wants everybody to hear. And David will not keep quiet. And we need to do the same. We need to remember what God has done for us and be ready and willing to share it with others. It's not a private thing. It's a public thing. Mark and Gretchen moved from Berkeley, California, to my hometown in 1972. And they, they started a music store, and they named it Blue Eagle Music. You see, back in Berkeley, they had been a part of the, uh, the hippie movement. They lived in a commune. Uh, they had long hair, and they drove a, a Volkswagen bus. So if you're my age or older, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, you younger ones can talk to your parents. They'll explain it. And they believed in free speech and free love and, uh, and free drugs. But the truth is they weren't free at all. And so Gretchen started looking around for something to give her life meaning, and somebody one day shared their story with her about Jesus, and Gretchen believed. Mark wasn't quite so sure. When they moved to uh, our hometown, Gretchen started attending our little Methodist church, but for Mark, it didn't seem really like an option for him. And it was Easter, 1973, and Gretchen had left for worship. 
Mark decided that he would uh, smoke a joint. But um, Gretchen had been pretty adamant since, as Mark put it, she she was on her religious kick, uh, that there would be no more drugs in the house. And so he climbed into the fireplace, thinking that the smoke and the smell from the marijuana would go up the chimney and Gretchen would never know what he had done. So picture this in your mind. A man squatting in a fireplace, smoking a joint. And suddenly the absurdity of it all dawned upon him, and he began to laugh at himself. And then the absurdity of the meaninglessness of his life dawned upon him, and he began to cry. And he crawled out of that fireplace, he put on his coat, he drove off, to join his wife for worship. And he arrived about halfway through the sermon, but it didn't matter because he had already made his decision. And so when Pastor Joe gave the invitation for people to make a decision to follow Jesus, Mark said yes. And that day, he moved from death to life. What's your story? See, the reason we share our story so the other person becomes aware of what God has done for you. And they begin to think, you know what? If God can do that for Bob, if God can do that for Mark, if God can do that for Gretchen, uh, maybe he can do it for me. If if that's true for you, maybe that can be true for me as well. You see, what I think people are, are dying to hear is authentic stories of personal and spiritual experiences, of, of longing to find meaning in life. Stories of of hope in the midst of of distress where God enabled you to hold fast in spite of evidence to the contrary, where you were near death, but but God brought you back from death. They want to know that they're not alone in the universe, that there is a God who will be with them in their pain and in their joy. That's what people are looking for. Maybe you're looking for that today. Maybe you've been looking for something to give meaning to your life and you haven't been able to find it. Maybe today is the day for you to take that step to begin the great journey of the spiritual life. To begin to recover from death and to move into real life, genuine life, authentic life. Maybe today is your day to share your story. Maybe you have a neighbor, maybe you have a friend, maybe you have a family member who's not sure, and they've never heard your story of faith. What would it mean today for them to hear your story, to know how the Lord has changed their life? God, we thank you that you are with us through life's challenges. And how over and over again, God, you bring us back from the grave, you bring us back from death, and you give us that real life. God, help us to remember that we've got that story and that we need to share it with others. This is not something that's private. It's not something that we keep to ourselves. God, it is a story that needs to be heard because people are looking for life. And you called us to be the messengers of that life. 
Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Fill us with your love and joy. Fill us with your light. And we can be bearers of life, we pray in Christ's name.